covering all aspects of Milwaukee Brewers baseball. It's time for Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Here is your host, Matt Pauley. It is time for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. My name is Matt Pauley. Great to have you with us. Another week of the offseason, another week of not really that much going on, but I think that is going to be the trend throughout the course of this offseason as it's going to be a while until teams really start doing anything. It was kind of interesting. Uh, the, the Toronto Blue Jays made a move this past week, and there's been some speculation out there that of all the teams out there, maybe the Blue Jays would be the team that might be able to be the most aggressive uh, in this year's very weird free agent market. So we'll see how it all plays out. But for the most part, things are going to continue to move relatively slowly. As always, our housekeeping items here at the top of the podcast. If you want to get in contact with me, best way to do so is on Twitter at Matt Pauley on air, M-A-T-T-P-A-U-L-E-Y on air. And uh, also, uh, if you do listen to the podcast on Apple Podcast and can subscribe and leave a ranking and review, that would be fantastic as well. This podcast this week is a little bit different. In fact, there might be some of you out there that choose not to listen, and that's okay. Uh, come back next week when we kind of get back to normal, uh, but I'll explain why it's a little bit different in just a moment. The one bit of news that we got from the Brewers this week was the fact that they were making a change on their coaching staff and a longtime staff member and really a fan favorite as much as uh, any assistant coach on a, on a baseball team can be a fan favorite, uh, a fan favorite, and somebody that uh, sometimes fans did not like so much uh, is not technically going to be a member of the active coaching staff, and that is third base, third base coach Ed Cedar. He is moving into a new role in the organization. He is going to serve as an advisor to the Major League coaching staff, and uh, with that, he is still going to be in uniform prior to uh, the game, uh, and he is going to uh, advise the coaching staff and be somebody that they can lean on but he is not going to be an active member of the coaching staff uh, during games and somebody who has been with the organization for a really really long time Um, he started in the organization in the very early 2000s and he's done a lot of things in the organization he will remain in the organization but just in a a different role the new the new member to the coaching staff is Quentin Barry he has served as a minor league outfield and base running coordinator he's somebody that the Brewers have always had eyes on as an up-and-comer in the coaching profession and I have to guess that they were worried that they may lose him to another organization if they didn't get him to the big league staff. He's somebody who even had a stint as a player coach at AAA Colorado Springs in 2018, so they were always eyeing him for this kind of a role. So he is going to move into uh, into that position, and we don't know yet between him and Jason Lane who is going to be coaching at first and who's going to be coaching over at third. Everybody else returns, and there was some talk about what does does Andy Haynes and his assistant hitting coach Jacob Cruz do they return after the Brewers had such a tough hitting year this past year? I think that would have been a tougher proposition had they had the same kind of hitting numbers over the course of a 162 game season. But one of the one of the toughest things coming out of last year, and this applies to everything, absolutely everything that happened. How do you evaluate it? What was real? What wasn't real? I'm going to drop this stat again. You've probably heard. I, Who knows how many podcasts I've mentioned it on since uh, the season's been over, but it's been a bunch of them. The Brewers had their worst batting average in the history of the organization. That's really bad, right? Yeah, sure. But they had the second best batting average in the National League Central. Everybody's hitting was way, way down. I'm not making excuses. I'm really not. I'm not trying to make excuses for the hitting, but what I am saying is, it probably wasn't completely fair to evaluate Andy Haynes and and, and Jacob Cruz on what happened this past season because hitting was down across all of Major League Baseball. Now, if the Brewers would have seen something that they didn't like and decided to make a change, I think we could have understood it. I I wasn't sitting here saying that, yeah, 100%, absolutely, these guys need to be back next year. But I also understood it really whichever direction they took. Now, if they struggle offensively, as much as they did this past season, again, next year, 
I never like to talk about people potentially losing their jobs, but I think we're having probably a very different conversation right now. But in a in, in a shortened season, it's just really, really tough to evaluate what anybody is doing, and we'll see how things look. And don't forget, like we've seen this with coaches more often than not, and this is just a, a handy bit of information to kind of keep in the back of your mind. More often than not, when it comes to coaches – like fans are always calling for coaches to lose their jobs and the coaches who have the most success tend to be the coaches who just stay there, stay in an organization, stay in their role, especially when it comes to hitting coaches and pitching coaches. I can't tell you this was very early on in my tenure at WTMJ and covering the Brewers uh, and doing the Brewers extra innings post game show. I remember getting phone calls about firing Derek Johnson. Fire DJ, fire DJ. This guy's only a college coach. He has no business being a major league pitching coach. Some time goes by, and all of a sudden, he's the pitching whisperer. And when he left the Brewers to go to the Reds, it was the worst thing that happened in the history of the organization to some. And then Chris Hook comes in, and there were some pitching issues. It was fire Chris Hook, fire Chris Hook. What is this guy doing? They missed Derek Johnson. Get rid of this guy. Didn't hear that this past year at all. Pitchers pitch well. Sometimes it's not so much about how if you've got if you've got great players and bad coaches or vice versa. Like judging judging coaches, and I'm not trying to say Derek Johnson wasn't a good pitching coach. He is, but you know what? Chris Hook is a good pitching coach as well. I don't know how good of a hitting coach Andy Haynes is. I don't know how good of a hitting coach uh, Jacob Cruz is, but I can tell you that. A lot of times you, you stick with guys. Same thing, Darnell Coles, who was the hitting coach before. I, I, I took phone call after phone call from people wanting to wanting to see him fired, and then he moves on, and lots of people said, oh, that's that's the difference. So it's tough when, when, we're, when you're talking about coaches on a major league coaching staff. For the most part, these guys are, these are major league players who know what they're doing. And I, I always tell you, development doesn't end at the, at the big leagues, but – especially for a hitting coach, they're there to lend some suggestions. I think I think fans give way too much credit and sometimes um, you know, way too much blame to coaches uh, based off what's going on. And can, can a good coach make a difference? Yeah, it, they, they can. But I don't know. I just it just feels like, the longer guys stay somewhere, the more success they have, and uh, and that's we'll see what happens again moving forward. Again, if we're having the same conversation this time next year, it's probably a probably a, a different result. You probably can't have a second straight year of having your worst batting average in franchise history and not make some sort of change. But for this year, no change is going to be made. All right. Um, so here's what we're doing this week, and it's a little bit different. And there may be some of you that go ahead and press the stop button here in just a moment, and that's okay. And I hope you're back next week because I, I like talking to you. And I like it when people listen to this podcast, and I hope you'll listen to this. But I also understand that uh, this podcast can be an escape for people. They just want to hear about baseball. They don't want to hear about much of anything else. And they, all things considered, they just rather hear me talk about who the Brewers are going to try to go after to play third base or first base or what they're going to you know, that sort of stuff. And we'll have those conversations. We will have those conversations uh, over and over and over here on the podcast over the next few months. I've been wanting to do this for a while, and this seemed like a good week to do it because we're kind of in a dead period right now. Not a whole lot is going on. My counterpart at WTMJ when it comes to the Bucks is Justin Garcia hosting uh, the Bucks post game show. He does a little bit more. He's got a more uh, kind of elaborate role with the, uh, with the Bucks than, than what I do. Um, but we're, we have many of the same responsibilities as well. And we just got done with a very unique season. Bucks and Brewers essentially playing at the same time. And there were two separate things that made it very unique, clearly the coronavirus and also uh, social justice issues. And I wanted to have this conversation with Justin because uh, I, I just kind of wanted to compare the NBA to Major League Baseball and what he went through with what I went through. Uh, maybe maybe pull back the curtain a little bit for you on, on some of the things that were going on during the season, things like that. So there's not a lot of on-field talk in this podcast. This, this podcast and this conversation I'm about to have with, uh, with Justin largely focuses in 
on, on those two things, on playing during a pandemic and also the social justice issues that resulted in both the Brewers and the Bucks not taking the field slash court uh, during the course of the season and what was a very unique time. So uh, we are going to get into all those things and uh, and much, much more. I hope you'll enjoy what's uh, coming up with that. Uh, let's go ahead and welcome Justin Garcia. Again, he is the studio host on the Bucks Radio Network. You can follow him on Twitter at TMJGarcia. Justin. Really appreciate uh, your time. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm all right. So your your turnaround looks to be much quicker than mine because it sounds like the NBA is going to get going here in about a month and a half on December 22nd. Were you were you at all surprised with the the quick turnaround that it's going to be? Um, no, I guess. I mean, I I was most surprised initially when they um, they the plan they originally had of around a December one start date. I thought there's no way possible that's going to happen. The whole MLK Junior Day start. I think we all kind of talked ourselves into that, and it made sense if we assumed Christmas was gone that that's the next big TV day to, to shoot for, and it's always a big day on the calendar for the NBA. But uh, that I think the caveat there was, you know, that was kind of well, maybe we could do this, and that was still when the league hoped, well, we could potentially push this into February or March and maybe things will be normal by then. And, you know, as we've started to see in the last few weeks, that is just not going to be the case. So you started to see the money that was at stake. And look, while this does, it's unfortunate if you're the Lakers or the Heat, and to a lesser extent probably as well, the Celtics and and the Nuggets, still we're talking about half the league that hasn't played since at least – Uh, early August that, you know, you have the eight teams that weren't invited to the bubble and then the six teams that didn't qualify for the playoffs. So the majority of your league hasn't played in about three months, if not more. So uh, maybe we'll see. The league has still been kind of quiet on what the the overall plan is. We just know the start date. Maybe we'll see kind of a tiered rollout here where the Lakers and the Heat uh, aren't necessarily scheduled that week of Christmas. They don't start until the new year, although you're then you're compressing a lot of things. Uh, look, I just think, and I've said this a couple of times, we talked about asterisks and, you know, our two sports heard it a lot of what are you really going to take away from this season here? To me, next year, the 2020-21 season is going to be the asterisk year for the NBA. I think baseball and the other sports are fine. It seems like the NBA is now dealing with everything that football and uh, baseball had to deal with over the summer. Now the league gets to go through that. I'll say this about baseball: what I what I'm most interested in in the turnaround, it, and it's it's very much connected to pitching. Like there's there's the formula out there where if you if you take a pitcher and you increase their innings workload exponentially by a large enough number, there is a line that when you cross the the chances for injury just really grows and i'm going to be really interested to see next year how t- the brewers and all teams handle the increased workload from last year to this upcoming year when it comes to pitchers and trying to avoid injuries i think that would be the one thing with baseball that i think could really be impacted next year as related to this past season yeah I, it's just going to be a weird year for basketball where um I, look i think we all we often complain about load management. It's going to be an all time, it's going to be an all time load management year where, you know, just talking about a twelve twenty two start date. Uh, if that's the case, I mean, I think you're going to see LeBron James plays Christmas Day, but probably doesn't play the other seven of their first eight games of the year, and it's going to be like to that extent with all your superstars, especially when you factor in, you know, we're talking about seventy two games basically through what January, February, March, April, and I believe May. So basically five months to get in 72 games. We're getting pretty close to playing, especially with taking time off for basically an all-star break with no all-star game. We're basically going to be playing every other day. And now you don't have the benefit of being in a bubble and just walking to a bus. There's going to be travel. So this could be a really weird year in the NBA. I'm going to say this one more time just for people listening because, look, I, I hear it from, from listeners of this podcast. People come to it wanting an escape, and there's people out there that don't want to hear discussion regarding the coronavirus and, and, and don't want to hear things, real-life things and how they're impacting sports. So if you are in that camp, 
this might not be the podcast that you want to listen to today. I hope you will listen to it, but I want to get into get into all those things. And uh, Justin was a little bit different for for you when it comes to basketball because the season was going. The season was going through the home stretch when all of a sudden everything shut down in March where with baseball they were in spring training so they were they were coming down towards the end of spring training but for you what a, what a weird thing to have the season go through the vast majority of it and then it just stop and there for a while we didn't know if the season would resume we didn't know when it would resume it was a it was a very odd place to be to be stuck in time kind of at that at that point of the season for such an extended period of time yeah and i kind of went back and forth where i you know i i still remember sitting on my couch prepping for the buck celtics game on march 11th when everything kind of hit a standstill and seeing the reports on espn and watching that mavs game and seeing Mark Cuban's reaction. And, you know, we, none of us really knew anything about this virus at the time that I remember being naive enough to think, okay, I mean, so we're pausing for a week or two and then we'll be back. Yeah. And then as, as things went along, you start to see, okay, that's definitely not going to be the case. I went back and forth several times and really um, from probably April through may i didn't think we would see any type of restart that i just thought it was done and then i believe it was late may once some of the information of the bubble started to trickle out you were cautiously optimistic and even the weeks leading up to the bubble um the week of so july 31st was their first game against the celtics those two weeks before it you were doing all the stuff to get prepared that you ordinarily would before a season starts or restarts in this case but in the back of your mind, you were still kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop and thinking like, okay, is there going to be a chance that we see a team have a bunch of positive cases and then that kind of morphs and this whole thing is put on hold? And it was kind of a, we start 731, but I'll believe it when we get to 731 and I'm, I'm walking into the building. So once that happened, it was amazing how quickly – any of the fears about any of these games taking place just really dissipated with the setup that the league had. I mean, once we got about a week into the bubble and you saw all the procedures they had in place, I took it for granted that we were going to finish this season and going to have a completion and a champion that it, you never really thought of it again. In, in my case, and, and all the guys that I worked with on the broadcast were kind of in the same boat too, where you real, you, it just took it for granted of, Okay, we're going to finish this and there's nothing that's going to slow it down. I I think baseball, I think Major League Baseball and the NBA both deserve a lot of credit and I think the credit probably needs to be increased as we go along. We just watch what's happening in football, both the, I mean, a, a ton of college football games were canceled this past weekend. NFL games have been canceled every day. It seems like more players in the NFL are are testing positive. The NBA had the advantage of being in the bubble where they could control everything, but but it worked obviously amazingly well. I know Major League Baseball had their issues early on with the Cardinals and with the Marlins, and then obviously right at the end of the season, uh, the situation with the Dodgers is not something that you want to have seen happen. But they went a really long time without any positive test, and I still think it was a success for Major League Baseball. They were doing something that nobody else had done. They were the first league to actually be traveling around the country and doing everything. So to me, I'm not trying to dismiss what happened with the Cardinals and the Marlins, but I feel like that was a that was a good learning lesson that they, they saw that, you know, okay, the protocols weren't quite where they needed them to be, and they took them one step further, and it worked. And I just – do you agree? I mean, you look what the NBA has done, and you look at what Major League Baseball is able to do. I think a lot of really good decisions were made by leadership in both camps. Yeah, and I think you need to see failure too, and you need to see those examples like what happened with the Marlins and the Cardinals and other teams just so you know what plan B is because we can start the season and say here's the plan and – I mean, nothing should happen, but if it does, we'll do this. But you don't really know how to react and how to go forward until you're put in that spot. And that's going to be paramount for the NBA and you know for the NHL as well. But those are the two, when you think about it, that they were in the ideal spot of we're talking about finishing 10% of your season, if that, and then doing the playoffs, whereas Major League Baseball and the NFL uh, are getting their entire league or entire season off the ground during this pandemic you're going to see it. And I think that's the one caution I would put out there for NBA fans is it was utopia in the bubble where you knew 
nothing is going to penetrate that, and we're going to get these games off without a hitch. You didn't see any positive cases. That's not going to be the case come December 22nd that these guys are out there in the real world, in their communities and in their homes. You're going to see positive cases. So um, I think it's going to be important to use the learnings from Major League Baseball and even the NFL and see how do these sports pivot once you saw uh, positive cases and once you start to see outbreaks like we saw with those two teams specifically, uh, what are some of the plans that the NBA can have going forward? Because, look, you can be flexible all you want, but um, you're going to deal with this. So you can say, well, we're only going to release half the schedule and we're going to plan for this, but you better have that plan because you were at a great advantage in July and August and September, and that's gone. So you're going to have to deal with all this. And judging on, you know, the numbers that we see, I mean, this isn't slowing down, that the cases outside are even worse than they were when these sports were dealing with them, that it's at an all-time high. So that makes it extremely difficult. And, you know, like I said, I would just caution to all the fans out there to get used to this because you are going to deal with seeing your favorite player not play in some or a handful of games this year, whether it's load management or whether it's he tested positive for COVID-19. I'm a college basketball broadcaster, and the way it's working in the NCAA is if you have a positive test in your program, coach, staff member, player, whatever it might be, you're down for 14 days. No practice, no anything, 14 days. Now, if that happens in the season, not only are you going to miss two weeks, you're probably going to miss 17, 18, maybe 19 days because it's not like the day that that 14-day quarantine ends that you can go play a game the next day. you got to get a couple days of conditioning, a couple days of practicing. I'm personally kind of just preparing myself to know that I'm probably not going to broadcast every game this year because they're probably not going to be played. And you're right about baseball went through the travel. Now they went with no fans. We don't know if the NBA is going to – it certainly sounds like they'd like to have at least limited fans in the buildings when the season uh, gets started. I think baseball, when they're back, they're they're using what they did in the the NLCS and the World Series as maybe kind of a template as well. But – all of a sudden, putting all these things back into, like you said, the real world, and the the the, the cases are spiking. And there's whether it doesn't matter what people think about this thing, if if somebody gets it, the leagues are going to deal with it in a certain way. I'm going to be really curious to see what happens both in the NBA and NHL and the college basketball as these cases do pop up on these rosters. Well, and to me, the interesting part is going to be what do these teams deem as their civic responsibility because. Look, we saw in baseball and from the initial plans we've heard trickle out for the NBA where they are talking about fans. I mean, there are ways to do it. And we've seen teams in the NFL, the Chiefs still have fans in their stadium. There's ways to do it where the fans are not going to be anywhere near players. So it's going to boil down to what do you deem as your civic responsibility? Do we need to make money to uh, keep more people employed that otherwise we may not be able to without getting that gate revenue? Um, even if it means, look, potentially we can do rapid testing and we can do things like making people uh, get their temperature checked and whatever else and social distancing and masks, we can do all that. But there's still a chance that somebody is going to come in that's positive and spreads this around and then it continues to spread within our community. So that's going to be the interesting thing is what, where do teams kind of deem their responsibility to lie on? You know, you can make a case that we're helping the community by bringing in fans and keeping people employed, but are you also spreading it within your community? Do you think, and from a broadcasting standpoint, everything was done at, at Pfizer Forum during the during the bubble period, do you think that broadcasters will even be traveling this upcoming year? Like, are those type of preparations, are, is that even being talked about yet? So I haven't heard anything, but as the bubble progressed... Um, we all talking with everybody involved on the radio team, we all kind of assume this is what next year is going to be. And also, I mean, that was at the time, there was a lot of talk of doing kind of uh, short-term bubbles where you would just do a bubble for a month or so to start the season, give the guys two weeks off, do another one. And then again, the hope was, okay, that'll probably take us through February, March, Maybe we're back to normal then where we can start to have people in arenas. Um, I mean, look, I know it's a bummer for a a lot of people you talk to uh, that just enjoy that aspect to travel and get around to see uh, all these cities and get to go to some of these arenas and historic places. Right. But Mm -hmm. and I think the big part for us is um, 
you know, you, you just don't see as much that it's great. They gave us everything we wanted. We had access to all the players. We had multiple camera views. Everything you can imagine was right there in front of us. The one thing that wasn't there was the game where you can't just latch on and decide, okay, I'm going to follow this guy on this possession and I'm going to look for this specifically. You couldn't really do that. And you, you, you couldn't watch for things like seeing guys interaction on the benches. If a guy tweaks something and gets up and heads to the locker room, all that was gone. So, you know, while those things are minor and made it a minor inconvenience, overall, uh, it went about as good as you could have expected. And, you know, especially if there's no fans, I just don't see what the point is of extending your travel party sure. and, and why wouldn't you just keep this set up? And look, our engineer will tell you too, this was an ideal setup for him because when you think about a normal season, you know, Pfizer Forum, the Bucks are sharing it with Marquette and any concerts or Disney on ice and anything that's coming through, he'll go through the process of setting up the equipment sometimes every game where you'll set it up, you'll get there a couple hours before the game, set everything up, check it out. And then, oh, Marquette plays here. It's a Friday game. Marquette plays here on Sunday. So you got to tear it down. And then you go through the whole thing again where in the bubble it was, here's where you guys are broadcasting from, and you're here until October. So just keep everything set up. We could walk in and know everything was in working function and there was no issues to work through. It was great in that sense. Uh, but, you know, I, I would be hard-pressed to see what the reasoning to send broadcasters on the road this year would be that, you know, it just – at least through next year. And once we hopefully start to get this under control and get a vaccine, I don't think you really can send these extended travel parties on the road. Now, I found out this week for Green Bay basketball for road games, I'll still be able to be at the at the games for home games. But for the road games, I'm going to have to broadcast off of the uh, like the ESPN Plus broadcast, ESPN, yeah. which, you know, some some schools do a really good job with those broadcasts, but at some schools, it's like a single camera at the top of the thing, just you know, going back and forth. I'm gonna have no clue, like especially the other team. Like you're not gonna be able to see numbers or anything. I'm gonna be sitting here having no clue who's holding the ball or whatever, and you know that isn't lined up straight on with like the stats so i'm not just going to be able to like look down at the monitor to figure out so that's going to be an interesting thing for me to deal with and it's something that yeah i i don't know what you thought um because when when the baseball season started we were still in that period where everybody just wanted some baseball was the first one to come back things were right behind it but um we all wanted some normalcy and when I was watching the games, and I'm talking more specifically about the road games because I was lucky enough to be at Miller Park for the home games, uh, but for the road games, there'd be times where I was watching on a monitor and it just looked really weird to me because there were no fans and the, the game was just different. I would actually listen to the radio broadcast and kind of close my eyes because the crowd noise that was coming through on the radio broadcast, you would have never known outside for a couple moments here or there. But for the most part, it sounded almost like they were there. And there was something comforting about it, just listening to that, even though I knew that Jeff and Lane were actually sitting at Miller Park doing the game off the monitor. It was weird for me in that the first game against the Celtics on, on July 31st, um, I remember walking in. So they had us, we were in Pfizer form, and they had us inside the Bucks locker room. So the TV broadcast of Jim and Marcus, they were doing their, their broadcast literally from inside the locker room where you could see the Bucks players lockers behind them. That's where they were. Um, their, their pregame and postgame with Zora and Steve Novak, they were doing that just down the hall in a media room where coach Budenholzer and the opposing coach would address the media before. And in, in the case of Bud after every Bucks game and then we, me and Ted Davis, were um, just to the right of that in basically a coach's conference room within the locker room. So walking in and seeing the setup and thinking, like, okay, this is not at all what I expected. And as soon as that game started, um, seeing all the monitors, so we had a quad screen on one wall that showed us a couple of different camera views. There was um, one camera that was positioned specifically on the shot clock and game clock. And then there was another uh, shot clock actually on the wall. And then we each had a monitor in front of us. that was just the game feed and walking in and, and sitting down. And as soon as the game started, 
looking at that feed and hearing some of the things they did, like going as far as taking a piped-in call from Eric Jensen, the Bucks PA announcer, to go through the starting lineups and hearing all the songs that you would normally hear at Pfizer Forum, as I was watching the monitor and hearing all that in the background, you start to forget that like I'm in a locker room watching this on a computer screen until after you know, tip off and the first points are scored and then you kind of zone out and you see, oh, yeah, I am not in our usual spot looking at the court. This is the weird setup. So the, they went through enough stuff to kind of get you to, get you to forget about that. And I, I think what was different for me was I, I think you and I have talked about this. It, it, road games can be tough when, um, you know, we're not there. So some of the things I just talked about that we can't key in on, we're watching the TV feed. And in some cases we're hearing the radio feed. So we're dealing with a delay where you know what's going to happen. And that kind of takes away from watching it and, and knowing what to look for when you know, okay, this is going to happen that those games can have their challenges where it's tough to stay engaged and just tough to be as into it as you are at home games. When you can see all that develop, the one positive was that eliminated that in road games where I was basically on level playing field for home and road games. You still miss some of those little things we went through, but that I found last year or or in the bubble um, was probably the most engaged and keyed in I felt. And not to say like, Oh, I just tune out during road games, but it was the most keyed in I felt during road games where you actually felt like you were there more so than the usual setup where we're, you know, listening to a delayed radio call and then watching the TV feed in the radio station. I thought the biggest difference between Major League Baseball and the NBA, I, maybe you'll disagree with me because you're more keyed in to, uh, to the NBA. I thought the level of play in the NBA was very, very similar to what you would normally see. I think they did a really good job of keeping that intensity, where with Major League Baseball, I thought the game was different. I thought it was incredibly different. I didn't start to feel in the final week, week and a half of the season, um, there was that there was that series against St. Louis at home, which felt there were some games in there, and that final uh, home series against Chicago, uh, there were some games in there that kind of felt like the intensity were a little bit more. Um, but yeah, like overall, uh, it just it the the game felt different to me in baseball. It didn't feel different to me when I was watching NBA games on TV. Am I? Uh, would you agree with me there, or am I looking at it from just yeah. being more keyed in on baseball? No, I think overall that's right. I think the biggest difference we saw in the NBA was the offense was at a level we didn't expect. That uh, I thought it, it was entirely possible we were going to see pretty bad offenses for the first few weeks at least, uh, just for rust. And you know we saw these guys come in and um, not even pick up where they left off. The offenses were even better, and you know a lot of people have said. The reasoning and, uh, you know, just being in a gym with no fans and the sight lines, and it was very conducive to shooting that you saw guys increase their shooting percentages and good shooters became elite shooters and so on. Um, And I think, you know, I don't know how much of it was because of the shooting, but we did see defense take a little bit of a step backward. But overall, I think the two offset each other, and it was basically the product we had been accustomed to seeing. I agree with what you said about baseball, where, you know, I wasn't heavily invested this season. I watched a handful of Brewers games just because of it going on the same time. But especially early on, some of the stuff that you would watch, it just, you know, it just felt different. And I don't know how to put my finger on what it was exactly other than saying this isn't the game I've been used to seeing for the last 30 plus years. I still, that first home game, I remember sitting there and they're, they're doing the, Opening day activities, introducing both to you know everything that you normally see on opening day, and I remember sitting there in the press box, looking at the big you know screen at, at Miller Park, and looking at guys' eyes as they were taking the video down the line as they were being introduced, and it felt like to me that there was just this feeling of why are we doing this? Like yeah. there's nobody here. Why are we doing? Let's just play the darn game already, and. I do think, especially in baseball, where it's a 162-game grind. I think the culture of basketball. I mean, you could put you could put a lot of basketball players on a on a playground, and they're gonna they're gonna be intense. They want to win. Like they're gonna. Uh, it's not gonna be exactly the same, but you understand kind of the route that I'm going on. I think in baseball, in a 162-game season, 
having the energy inside of a stadium is a really important thing. And that's why, I mean, it, it was nauseating in the first month when all you would hear is about how the Cubs were creating their own energy. How you know, but but there was a reason that that was being talked about, and I think the reason was they found a little something, and it took other teams a lot longer to realize they had to do that. And all of a sudden, then the Brewers have you know Brent Suter out in the bullpen, you know, hitting the the drum thing or whatever it was. Like eventually, as the season went along, I think teams did start to realize we have to find a way to create some energy and intensity and things like that. But it just it was not there. It was a it was a really weird experience being inside of Miller Park for those games because it was just basically I was sitting in a room alone watching a game that had that there was no energy to uh, and it, it was just a weird experience so um, how many people on average were there in the press box and surrounding areas and what did you have to go through every game when you entered yeah so i had to get a temperature check every day i had to answer the the you know the, you know every time you go to like a doctor how they ask you have you been in contact same yeah, same question symptoms yeah so and then they checked your temperature every single day um i had to get a credential for every series i did not have a season credential the only people who got the season credentials uh were I think the the three riders and I guess four I guess Will from the Athletic had in addition to uh, Rosie Hodricord and McAlvey, uh, and then they had social distancing. There was the only P. I think those three guys and me were the only media members that were at every single home game. You would have a TV person come in occasionally, but the press box area was mostly empty, and you had to stay a certain number of seats away from. From everybody, Andrew Wagner had a uh, season credential too. I forgot to mention him. So five. Um, I just sat in the booth where I do the the post game show because there was no there was no point to me being out in the other area when I couldn't be around anybody. And yeah, it was it was just weird because um, yeah, there was one other guy in the booth that I was in, but we were we couldn't really talk to each other, and there was plexiglass, and he was the person that was operating the you know the countdown clock uh, that's part of the scoreboard. And it was just, yeah, it was just empty. So that, it was, it was so weird. I it wasn't, I was glad to be watching baseball live, but I would not say being there was an enjoyable experience, if that makes sense. And there was no food, right? No. I mean, that's the one thing we care about in the media. Uh, yeah, I mean, we had the same thing where that was, my biggest question going in was, what are we going to do for food in these games? Especially, so I was in a weird spot because I was basically all the same where, I had to uh, answer those questions and get a temperature check. And as it progressed, the Bucks started to kind of enhance it where it went from just getting the forehead scans to we had to walk through a full body scan oh. towards the end. Um, and uh, it, it, they also kind of kicked up their, I guess, maintaining distance where, you know, as the bubble kind of progressed, we would notice because on, on a given game, there's probably about 10 of us in the building in the entire arena. And now there was a three of us from the radio team. There was me, Ted and our engineer, Ryan Elliott. There was um, about five to six people from the TV side where you would have Zora and Steve Novak and Jim and uh, Marcus. And then you would have some of their cameramen and producers that were there as well. And then depending on if it was like an afternoon game or such you would still have some bucks employees within the building because they're stationed out of there so you would just have random people patrolling the halls i did notice as we got into august and september um that they then had people walking around and checking in and you know we would be about to go on the air and you would see somebody walk past the locker room and look in and there was a couple of times too where they went as far as coming in and taking a tape measure and measuring off six huh. feet to make sure we were you know, socially distanced from one another. Um, and then once, when we got to the playoffs, Zora Stevenson joined us on the air, which just made where we currently were impossible to fit four people. So they had to move us all together into, uh, it was basically one of those dressing rooms where talent would change for concerts and such that, that we were there for the end of the ride in the bubble. Um, but yeah, I, the weird thing for me was, Going through all that and, you know, knowing, okay, if what's, number one, what's the contingency plan? If I have a fever or if our engineer has a fever and gets turned away at the door, 
what do we do then where yeah. we kind of need the engineer uh but because of that you know for july through early september i basically didn't leave my apartment and didn't do much knowing look i can't risk being around somebody and even if i don't catch it showing up and getting a fever that i'm turned away and i'm out money that day and probably a, a couple of days forward too so i kind of became a hermit and that's the one thing I'm not really looking forward to is, uh, look, I, I I get the the feeling we're going to go through the same, if not more, that maybe we'll even be tested as we walk in for the December start dates that, you know, just putting yourself through knowing, okay, it's going to be more of what you did over the summer where you're basically not leaving and you're talking, which, you know, not that I was ever going out in large groups or anything, but just, okay, I'm going to be holed up in my home again and not really around people just because I can't risk not doing my job. So, yeah, it's – I was the same way. I was very – like I, I felt like there was a responsibility on my part if I'm going to be walking into that ballpark and then all of a sudden in a very small way I'm part of them being able to, to, to do all this. To do this, yeah. Um, so I took that very seriously. From a protocol standpoint, Major League Baseball put something in place that a, basically a timer would start when the final media availability, and all media availabilities were done on Zoom, when the final media availability was done. So when players and counsel were done talking, at that point a 90-minute timer essentially started, and everybody had to be out of the press box by the time that that 90-minute period came to an end. And they had security there. And for the writers and everybody, they, I guess they trusted me. And in, in a way, I'm kind of a, you know, a, an extension of the Brewers radio network, even though I'm not technically part of that. Um, so they, they didn't have somebody walk me out. But everybody else basically got walked out by security when they yeah. were done for the day. And security stayed in the press box until everybody was out of there. And that was a weird thing. I've never had to be – that was one of our big conversations before the season got started when we were making the decision whether or not I would be at the games was would there be enough time for me to get the post-game show in? And it never became an issue because there was just enough time. But I always had to have that 90-minute clock kind of in the in the back of my mind. So I had um, basically the same thing where as uh, we were getting close to the restart, we had – a couple of calls with the league where they would walk through everything they were going to do in the bubble. And then um, some messaging from the bucks as well of kind of the same thing of, okay, here's basically your allotted time in the arena. And the difficult part for me, it was, uh, so number one, and I think you're in the same boat um, in, in normal times, if it's a seven o'clock game, I would get to the arena at maybe 3.30 mm -hmm. or 4 where, you know, we go on the air at 6.30. It's not like I'm showing up at 6.15. Right. So um, I'm there well in advance because, you know, we got to do some things like uh, tape with the coach beforehand, which he usually talks just about two hours before tip-off. And you just like to be there around the players and see them go through warm-ups. And um, it's your chance to interact with anybody uh, nationally that's there covering. So you don't just show up just before you go on the air and the realization of, okay, I probably can't do that this year where I, you know, for, for a noon game, it's not like I'm going to show up at 1115, but in the past I'd get there at 9am. I, I, it's going to have to probably be 1030, 1045 ish. And they even gave us guidelines of a lot of time you had to be in the building. And I remember having to, to push back and say, this just isn't possible. But I think initially it was, we were allowed to be there for three and a half hours, which, you know, you factor in from the pregame show going on the air to the end of the game is about three hours. And then we have a postgame show and an additional postgame show that brings you to about 90 minutes. So it's just not possible. And, you know, I pushed back with that and I didn't really hear anything. And then I noticed I was kind of in the same boat where it was basically just, all right, fine, but don't screw this up. Right. So, you know, don't ruin this where there were nights when, you know, for they had a couple eight o'clock games. There were nights when I was literally the last person walking out of that arena where I would leave and the hallways are dark where there was one game. I remember it was very early in the bubble where I, I think they put the building on a timer because I'm doing my post game show. And just as I'm wrapping up the post game show, once that ends, I still have to do some stuff for the Bucks website 
and record some recaps and send it out. I start doing that. And all of a sudden, everything in the room just powers down where the lights turn off. <laughs> and I notice I'm not getting a charge on my computer. And I'm thinking, what is going on? And I look and it's 12 o'clock exactly. Where I'm like, I wonder if they have this building on a timer. So um, there are many nights where I would leave and I knew the security guard isn't even here anymore. I am literally the last person walking out of the building and hearing the door lock behind you where that became the norm as this went on. Yeah, there were times where, you know, the lights were off in the press box. I'm going walking through darkness and I'm checking my pockets multiple times. Do I have my keys? Do yeah. I have my phone? Because if I don't, I'm not, I'm not getting back in this building until tomorrow. It's, which is a weird feeling to have because those buildings, they're live things. There's always people there. There's grounds people. I'm sure there's people at five, like these things. There's always like almost 24 hours a day. There's something going on. I remember I was doing a national show one day after a Brewers game. So I stayed in my box. This was not this past year. It was a previous year. I wouldn't have been allowed to do this this past year, but I stayed. uh, I was in that box until like two o'clock in the morning or something. And the game was over at maybe eight and just watching, they were still working on the field when yeah. I left. I mean, there's just something always going on. I want to transition to one final thing before we get out of here. And I want to go back to uh, the social justice issues, which certainly impacted the Bucks and certainly impacted the Brewers. The Bucks were the first team uh, to decide not to play a game in the NBA, and the Brewers were the first team to decide not to play a game in Major League Baseball. The Bucks got it started when they decided not to take the floor that day what was it like for you that day as you we were all learning about this decision that they were making at the same time but for somebody like you you were learning about it while you were actively on the air getting ready for the game yeah and uh i feel like i alerted our team to it where so you know we started to hear some chatter about i believe it was the raptors and celtics were playing the day after and there was talk that they were going to do something. So you, you kind of had it in the back of your mind, but I still did not anticipate it to happen. I didn't think we would walk into the Bucks boycotting a game. Um, and, you know, that I remember that day, too. Some people raised the question of, are they going to do some type of protest? And you thought, yeah, maybe. And then it just, you know, you didn't really give it a second thought. So as we were doing the pregame show, um, we had the feed, as I said, the, the monitors in front of us were the piped-in feed from the floor in Orlando where we would see, you know, even it would start usually about an hour before tip-off and you would see the guys come out and start to warm up. And I remember we were about halfway through our pregame show and I don't even know why I thought of it, but looking at that feed and, you know, you could see the magic and uh, I finish up a segment, pitch it to break. And as soon as we went to break, I remember asking Ted, have we seen the Bucks on the floor yet? And he kind of didn't get a, give it a second thought either. Like, uh, I, don't, I don't think so. And then just as he said that, I think we both, the light went off of this is strange. Because you like at that point, we were 15 minutes away from tip. I mean, the players are out there well in advance of that. So then as soon as it basically became a snowball where the light bulb went off for both of us. And then at that very moment, I remember looking and you could see the magic with Nikola Vucevic and a handful of players turning to look towards basically the tunnel of where players would come out onto the floor. And then you thought, okay, this must be the Bucks coming out. And then the camera view started to change and it was just a shot of that tunnel and the tunnel's still empty. And then you start thinking, okay, something is happening here. So then I start texting some of the handful of people I know with the team. Of course, they're not responding, but like, Hey, is there something going on? And then once you knew, okay, something is definitely happening is when all of a sudden the camera feed we have changed from the court to position just outside the Bucks locker room where then you're like, okay, there is definitely something happening here. And then the tweets started to pour in of Bucks are, are boycotting this game. Um, I stayed there. That was, I believe that was a three o'clock game. Yep. It was an afternoon game. I was at the arena until 10 o'clock that night where we went through our normal pregame and we got through it. And it was basically the last five minutes where you had to say, we may not be playing today and going through it as if it was business as usual. And then as soon as the game starts, it was Ted and I that had to basically vamp for about 
15 or 20 minutes before they finally made the call of this isn't happening. And uh, as soon as the game was called, I told him, look, I'm going to stay here because we at least have this camera view and we have access to what is going on there. So I was there until about 10 o'clock that night. And I did a show on ESPN Milwaukee for a couple hours that night as well. Uh, but the Bucks eventually made a statement, I believe, at around 6.30. And, um, you know, we got to see throughout the night, they didn't cut off the camera feed. So all night long, I could see John Horst and other members of the Bucks team walking in and out of the locker room. And the weird thing was, so these are makeshift locker rooms where <laughs> it's not an actual locker room. It's basically a broom closet that they've turned into locker rooms. So there's no bathrooms or anything. So you would see players leave the locker room and you think, okay, something's going to happen or they're going to address the media. And then five minutes later, you'd see the player come back and walk in and you're thinking, what is going on? I knew a couple people in the bubble that I started texting and they said, well, these are makeshift locker rooms. There's no bathroom. So the players wow. are leaving to go to the bathrooms, walking past the media that's waiting outside the locker room and telling them we're not talking, going back in where this happened routinely uh, and like I said, it was it was hours, about three and a half hours after the game was supposed to be tipped off that they did address the media and make their statement. Um, but just, you know, the surreal day of seeing all of that unfold. And when I left the building that night, I packed up everything because I didn't think they were going to play again, that I thought this was it. So I had to pack up everything that I had with me that I kept there. And it was kind of the same in the series with the heat. If the minor inconvenience for us was, you know, once the bucks got down three games to none, it's elimination games from here on out. So I had to bring an actual kit with me to do the post game show just so our engineer could pack his things up. So every game from there on out, I had to pack everything up and take it with me in multiple trips. As I left the arena, I did the same that night because, you know, when I walked out of the building that day, I did not think the Bucks or any team would take the floor again for the remainder of that season. As that period goes through, and I mean, it, there, there were a lot of things that happened. First, they don't take the floor. Then you get the idea, the, the, the word comes out they're not going to play. And then, as you mentioned, hours go by before they actually address. And there were things going on in the locker room. They were trying to reach out to, uh, to, to government member and politicians within the state government and um then the rest of the nba schedule for that day gets gets blown out and and then that that's where the domino really effect started on the rest of sports and we'll get into that in just a moment but you said surreal it has to be when it was kind of like that in, in a very different way i hope people understand the analogy that i'm making here when when sports first shut down in march it was surreal because it seemed like every hour something new was happening and it was a de- very developing, very alive situation. And that day had that same feeling where it seemed like you blink and all of a sudden more information was coming in. Yeah. And I, you know, we knew there would be no other games played that day. You just can't that once you see one team go that far, there was two other games on the schedule. And one of them was, I, I don't recall who they were playing, but it was the thunder. And, Chris Paul's the head of the Players Association. So you knew, okay, the Thunder aren't playing. There's no way the leader of the Players Association can take the floor after two teams have already boycotted. So um, we knew there wouldn't be games that day. You kind of assume there wouldn't be the next day. And when we got the news, because all of that was fluid, and I believe it was a Wednesday, and then there was initially talks of, okay, this is just going to be a one-day thing. They had the late-night meeting that night where, you know, depending on the reports, the Lakers and Clippers were in the camp of, we're not playing anymore. And all of that started to get very fluid as well, where you heard those reports late Wednesday night into Thursday morning, and then it kind of started to change. And then we started to hear, okay, they're going to be back Friday. And uh, even then, thinking – well, this is really quick. And my thought was, if you go this far of we're standing up for this and we're, gonna, we're not playing and we're boycotting this game, doesn't it kind of lose some of the message if you return to the floor 24 hours later? Yeah. Like, don't you have to be out a little longer than that? And that was part of why I didn't think we would return to play. And I was shocked when we started to hear, okay, it's going to be Friday. And then that started to progress. 
And eventually it just became the weekend where, okay, we're taking a couple of days off and it's going to be Saturday and Sunday returns. We'll just take these and uh, the games that would have been Wednesday, Thursday and put them there. But even that, yeah, you're right. Where it felt like something was developing every handful of hours, whether it was the players association meeting that night and more some some of the information trickling out and what owners weren't really happy about this to the final plan on resuming play again, that that was very fluid. And it was just kind of being back in March and wondering, are we done for good? As that day developed from a baseball standpoint for me, I remember when when it first when the word came down that the Bucks were done. I saw a tweet from somebody, and it wasn't it was it was just a it was just a person. It wasn't a media member. It wasn't. It was just somehow this tweet ended up on my timeline, and it was something along the lines of, "Okay, Bucks, good job. Hey, Brewers, balls in your court now." And it was at that moment I said to myself, "The Brewers can't play tonight." Yeah. Now, I want to be really clear in what I'm saying here because I do I do believe in the. Um, the genuineness and the the authenticity at which the Brewers came at this when they made the decision not to play. I'm not questioning that. But even if that wouldn't have existed, and again, I think it did. I really think it did. Even if that wouldn't have existed, from a PR standpoint, I don't think they could play that game that night. When the when the Bucks say they're not playing, I don't think the Brewers had a had a choice at that point to to play or not to play. They they had to. And again, I. I, I think they did it for all the right reasons, but even if they wouldn't have done it for the right reasons, I don't think they're playing. Yeah, and that was my initial thought. And, you know, it, it kind of goes hand in hand, too, with the initial reports that we started to hear of. Um, you heard teams like the Lakers and LeBron and even Chris Paul that the Players Association and some of these teams were mad at the Bucks for doing this and not, I guess, approaching them and saying, hey, we're going to do this. And, you know, my thought was, well, you can try to make this a unified front and you can say, hey, we should do something. But until somebody actually does it, it's still talk. It's easier said than done that you need that first person or team to make the leap and do something. And I think it's kind of the same with the Brewers where I agree. It's not questioning the sincerity, but the Bucks doing that. Okay, they did it. So now we can follow suit where you just need that first player, individual team, you just need that first one to do it uh, more often than not where you, you need the kick in the pants to see, okay, now we got to do this too. And again, got to is probably the wrong wording because I do think it was sincere and it's just, you don't fully understand how difficult it is to be the first to do it. That sometimes you need that first person or team in this case to do something where you can say, okay, now we can do this. Craig Council mentioned when he spoke that day how the culture of baseball is so different than the culture of basketball, and that is largely why he was so impressed that his team made the decision that they made. Part of when I realized how big of a deal it was when uh, the Hall of Fame Museum in Cooperstown, they were looking for ways to chronicle that day. And this actually goes back to what I was telling you earlier where I d- did not have a, uh, a season credential. I had a daily credential. Uh, they were looking for somebody who uh, who had a daily credential to cover that day, and I actually sent my credential from that game to the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, so they can have all these pieces of uh of, you know whatever just to be able yeah. to to chronicle what happened that day. That's how historic of a day it was in baseball that the the Hall of Fame was reaching out to 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 get a credential, which is kind of uh, I wish that day would have never happened, but it was kind of cool to have something that belonged to me end up in Cooperstown. Do you have any thoughts to put it on eBay instead? No, I did not. <laughs> I actually, I just got, uh, so I sent it to them and they just sent me a uh, some documentation maybe about a week ago where um, I had to officially sign it over to them. So they already had it, but they needed the that and then they're going to send Proof me. Proof of ownership. Yeah. Uh, so I had to sign it over to them, and then they're going to sign me, send me a, a document, basically that I that I donated something to the museum, and then I get a card where I'm going to get free admission to the hall. That of was fame. my next question. I was going to say, so do you get free lifetime admission? Yep, lifetime membership to uh, to the hall of fame, which is I've never been, but now I have to go. Right, I have right, to go. Right. So, um, generally, I don't. This is always a cop-out way to end an interview, but I feel like when we talk about the things that we discussed here, I'm going to do it. 
did I miss anything? Like I'm, I tried to hit the the COVID stuff and the, uh, the the social injustice stuff and the way it pertained to to both basketball and baseball. And this has been a fun conversation. Was there anything that you experienced that is worth mentioning that I didn't ask you about? No, I don't think so. And I think you know, in all the times that I've been asked about the restart, and I'm sure you're in the same spot with people asking you, what was it like for the uh, 60 game season? Uh, it's I always try to make sure I'm not sounding like I'm complaining because, mm-hmm. you know, our jobs changed quite a bit, but the world changed quite a bit and everything around us changed. So I'm not complaining because yeah. we're, we were still very fortunate to be able to do this. I didn't expect to be working through the pandemic. I thought that, you know, my job was basically going to be eliminated throughout that calendar year. So I'm, you know, eternally grateful and thankful to, to the Bucks for bringing me back and still paying me despite the massive revenue losses that they had. Um, so I never want to make it sound like I'm complaining about some of the changes that we had to deal with. My biggest takeaway from the entire thing was when you go through that, it just really shines a light on, I'll speak for me here, how much I took that job for granted that you just get into the routine yep. and you know try to balance everything throughout your week that you get into this routine and know, okay, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, I'm doing this. And then I have to do this on the off days where it just becomes second nature. And you don't necessarily think of it as, man, I'm getting paid to do what people are paying to do, to go watch this game. And I love what I do. Uh, but you, you definitely, uh, you being me, you definitely realize, man, I took this for granted for the last couple of years. And having it taken away is when you realize, I really wish I had basketball back. So to to be able to get that back and be a part of it is something, uh, like I said, I'm grateful to the organization for. I've expressed that to um, a handful of people that I talked to in the organization from day one and, and after the season wrapped as well. And, you know, hopefully you don't reach that point again where I think we all say, boy, I'm never going to do this again. And then a year later we're slipping back in the same thing. But hopefully experiencing this is something where you know I get to do something special, and I should never take that for granted. No, that's a great point, and I'll, I'll just from my perspective, saying very much what you just said. In May and June, I would have killed to have a conversation about Craig Council not bunting enough, and that's like that's my least favorite thing to get into on the post game show when people call and want to talk about bunting. I would have loved to have like I missed it so much, and from I hope people understand. I, I was I'm one of a there are very few people in the United States of America that got to be inside of Major League ballparks this year watching live Major League Baseball. I was one of very small amount of people. I don't take that for granted. Was it as much fun as it is in the past? No, it wasn't. But that doesn't mean that I didn't appreciate the fact that I was able to be there. Just It wasn't as enjoyable. If losing 100 games, like nobody wants to hear this, and I, I, I'm, I'm very careful when I say this because I don't want anybody to feel bad for me because everybody is. there's a lot of people who are a lot worse off than me. Losing 100 games of baseball games this past year had a huge negative financial impact on, on me and my family that we're still trying to kind of figure out, and, and I'm hopeful that there's going to be games. But at the same time, the fact that I was able to do the 60 regular season games, that I was still employed, that I did it, I'm so thankful for that. So, yeah, you're, I think you're right on. We, we as people who cover these sports – I don't think we're so much complaining when we talk about the things that were different. We're simply stating the fact that it was different while we're still very cognizant of the fact that we're very lucky in what we get to do. Yeah, and I was grateful. I mean, I at least, I knew I had a lot of fun doing it, and I know that was because you know I didn't expect to be doing that. Mm-hmm. That uh, even when the restart happened, when they announced their plans for it, I initially didn't plan on being a part of it just because as we talked about the, the amount of revenue losses that teams had, you can't assume that you'll be back. So uh, just being involved with it, I had as much fun, if not more than I did during a normal season. I mean, obviously losing in the second round wasn't quite as fun, but uh, I did have that fun. And um, it's on me that I hope it doesn't start to slip away as we get into uh, next year that you can use the spring of 2020 as the reminder of, look, this can be gone, and who knows if you'll ever get it back. Yep. Justin, really, this was fun for me. I'm glad we got to do this. I think it was important to do this, and I appreciate you doing it with me. Yeah, anytime, Matt.
Justin Garcia joining us here on Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Again, kind of a different podcast this week, and uh, thank you for listening to the whole thing. I hope you found it interesting in what was just a very, uh, very odd year to be covering sports. And yeah, like like I just said, man, I am as weird as it was at, at times, as much fun as it wasn't compared to what it normally is, and that's not to say that it wasn't fun. Like, I will never, ever, ever take for granted the fact that I got to be one of very few people inside of a Major League ballpark watching Major League Baseball. That was that, that was very cool. It just wasn't the same. And I think we, on a lot of things in this world right now, we're just looking forward to things getting back to some level of normal at some point in time. And we don't know what that's going to look like. I think the NBA almost for sure We'll have a start to the season that's going to look still different. Maybe, maybe we move far enough along. Maybe we have a vaccine. You know, there's a lot of maybes there. Maybe things are starting to look more like normal uh, by the time the baseball season is going to get started. But certainly, no guarantee of that as well. We're all rooting for it. That's the that that that's what I will say. Like I. I've said this over and over because there are some people in, in sports media who have been accused of like rooting for the virus, and I, I don't generally think that's true. Uh, but more importantly, when we talk about it, I think we try to talk about it through the, at least for me, I'll say, hey, you know what? You, you, you read what's going on with these vaccines and these late trials. We could wake up tomorrow morning and Pfizer or AstraZeneca or Johnson and Johnson, any of these big pharmaceutical companies can get those final testing results in and they can be you know filing for the emergency authorization and that can start the process of us being back to normal sooner than later or this could just continue for a while whatever both those options are on the table and we try to deal with reality so thanks for putting up with kind of a non-baseball edition of brewers extras the podcast powered by wtmj mobile if that makes any sense uh, I just wanted to have that conversation. I think it was an important conversation uh, to be able to have. And for those of you who stuck through it, I hope you were able to uh, enjoy it. And we'll get kind of back to normal coming up uh, next week. Again, my appreciation to uh, to Justin Garcia for joining us. My appreciation to you for listening. And we'll talk to you again next week for another edition of Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast powered by WTMJ Mobile. Thanks for listening to Brewers Extra Innings, the podcast. Matt will be back next week with another episode. For all the latest Brewers news, keep listening to a home of the Brewers. News Radio 620 WTMJ.